poetry was my religion. It was the saving thing. It was the thing that gave me a reason to keep breathing. My heart aches, and a drowsy numbness pains my sense. Depression and art, sorrow and song, the pain of not being able to feel, and the ways in which our souls can wake or cling to poetry and beauty, even in the darkest seasons of our lives. Poet, priest, and professor Malcolm Geit discusses the intersection of faith, mental health, and literature. He shares his journey, some of his newest sonnets, and his insights into how to live a life of art and feeling amidst depression, one of the most common mental health issues. Welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast, a space where mental health and faith collide and conversation, connection, and change are possible. So, Malcolm, why don't we start at the beginning and talk about Keats oh. and gold? Oh, right. Oh, the poem, the poem gold. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, the starting point of that, uh, that well, the, the whole um, frame of that poem is is recalling. Um, it's me as a middle aged man recalling my youth um, and uh, a summer. Uh, that I had in Rome when my my father was um, who was actually a professor in Canada had a sabbatical year in Rome so suddenly I found that all my holidays school holidays for, for a year were in Rome and I was having a very hard time at school I was at an, a school which as a day school was very good but it had a small very dysfunctional boarding house and I was I found that a very dark place and I was quite um, I suffered in it and um, uh, you then you carry that out with you and sometimes it's when you come away on holiday that you really start processing <laughs> the things at school um but i had sort of discovered keats just before my dad moved to rome i'd been to keats's house in hampstead and suddenly you know uh, i i was actually feeling quite depressed when i went to keats's house in hampstead and um i didn't want to be there i was you know i was on the half term holiday and i couldn't go home for the holidays because my parents were in canada and i i um used to be sort of taken places by by kind of aunts and uncles uh, who didn't necessarily want to spend their time, you know, looking after their nephew and, and who, 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 but this particular aunt seemed to think that having had intense school time, I would like nothing more in my holidays than to visit museums and libraries, you know. So I was quite a resentful teenager. I remember getting to Keats's house in Hampstead Heath and um, I didn't even know who Keats was, you know, there was some boring old fart. And I stood there and the Ode to a Nightingale was on the wall. And I read it really out of sheer boredom, you know. In fact, it was on a wall just where you could look through the French windows into the garden where the tree was that the, in, that the nightingale sang in. You know, if you think it's almost exact, this is April now. In 2019, it was April 1819, you know, that that whole thing happened. So I don't even know the beginning of that. I was just, you know, very moody. And, and um, I read these words, you know, my heart aches 
and a drowsy numbness pains my sense. It's actually one of the most unpromising openings of a poem. You know, in <laughs> so my heart aches. Look, a drowsy numbness pains my sense, as though of hemlock I had drunk or emptied some dull opiate to the drains one minute past, and Lethe Woods had sunk. So I was going like, ache, drains, dull, sunk. I'm with you there, you know, I just, somebody knows how I feel. But of course, that poem only starts like that, then it suddenly lifts so unexpectedly, you know. Tis not through envy of thy happy lot, but being too happy in thine happiness, that thou, light-winged dryad of the trees, in some melodious plot of beech and green and shadows numberless, singest of summer in a full-throated ease. And I just... What was that? You know, I, I had no idea language could sound like that. And I found myself lifted out of my own feelings precisely because the poem had started where I was. And then, of course, you get that extraordinary... I was feeling, you know, very homesick. I think both both actually homesick for my home, and but also, if you like, metaphysically and spiritually homesick. I'd abandoned my faith because of my difficulties in the boarding house were so bad that I didn't actually think there could be a God, you know, in face of this stuff. So I, I, um, you know, I'd abandoned my faith. So I was kind of metaphysically homesick as well. And then suddenly, I mean, it's not a logical sequence, but out of nowhere, Keats summons up Ruth. Mm-hmm. You know, when yeah. sick for home, she stood in tears amidst the alien corn. I mean, alien corn. <laughs> and then he suddenly out of nowhere produces the window, doesn't he? He says, such as hath charmed open. Charmed magic casements opening on perilous seas in fairy lands forlorn. And then he comes back forlorn. The very word is like a bell that tells me back from thee to my soul self. So it's, it's not that the, the poem doesn't heal him in any way, but it opens a window. It p- provides another perspective and a kind of lift and a strange companionship with Ruth. And it is transformative. And there's something particularly for me about the windows that open on the perilous seas. And I came to realise that um, great poetry always does that. There's, there's always, it's a bit like, you know, Lucy in the wardrobe and Narnia and you go into this, you know, little box that you think is only this little box and then suddenly there's something opens out at the back of it. I've always felt that great poetry does that kind of thing. So Keats became my man, as it were, and I was, you know, literally having a kind of fix of Keats, which was... Self-indulgent in some ways, but very restorative in others. And then lo and behold, instead of going back to Canada, that very next holiday, I went to Rome. And somebody said, you've got to go to the Keats Shelley Memorial House. So I went to that place. And then I realised the other end of Keats's story. And I, uh, I'd i read, of course, the beautiful bright star, you know, what I was steadfast of thou art, which is was written in the fly leaf of his Shakespeare. And I, I just... Basically, my parents both had desks at the American Academy in uh, in Rome and were both doing research. And I just made the Keats Shelley house my my home. And uh, as I wrote in the in the in the in the poem about Keats's house, um, all the stuff I was trying to deal with, which I wasn't talking to anybody about, um, I just brought every day to Keats's house, and I kept reading his poetry. And I think I've got the line about. You know, Keats has this phrase about um, leaden-eyed despair. I mean, Keats's Ode to Melancholy, obviously, is a very important poem to me. And, um, you know, that I, in the very temple of delight, veiled melancholy, hath her sovereign shrine. 
though seen of none save him whose strenuous tongue can burst joy's grape against his palate fine. His soul shall taste the sadness of her might and be among her cloudy trophies hung. So you get in Keats this extraordinary sensitivity which allows both him to sound the depths, as I say in the poem, but also to elevate you. And it's interesting, it kind of mixes with a, with a, a rich sensuality. Now, one of the difficulties for me in the way I have experienced depression is that I experience it purely as the first verse of, of Keats's poem is numbness. A drowsy numbness pains my sense. I, I experience it as the loss of sensitivity and the loss of connectivity. But I found that Keats sort of spoke into that and then opened it out. So I use a, a kind of alchemical images about, about in the, the old, Poems crucible, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the leaden-eyed, you know, despair is turned into something in the gold, and and of course I'm riffing on in that poem also on Keats's uh, poem about first looking into Chapman's Homer, yes. yeah, um, which I love anyway. I mean, you know, much that I travelled in the realms of gold, but I like it because that's Keats testifying to the fact that one day reading a poem transformed him. Mm-hmm. And of course, I had exactly that experience with you, Keats. You, you know? did. You said sometimes a poem can save your life. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, um, I didn't come back to my faith for um, some years after that, and not until I was in my final year at Cambridge. And this Keatsian thing was happening to me in in when around the cusp of sixteen and seventeen. So for for those years between between um, discovering Keats and my recovery of faith, poetry was my religion. It was the saving thing. It was the thing that I that that gave me a reason to keep breathing. You know. Mm-hmm. So so actually, it was very important. Much of Malcolm's poetry operates within seasonal themes and has changes of mood and mental wellness embedded into its very essence. One of his collections is called Sounding the Seasons and contains 70 sonnets for use throughout the year, from the darkest days of January to the bright warm sun of August. I asked Malcolm to talk about his own journey through mental health challenges and how his writing and his faith has helped him along the way. I am one of these people who's quite affected by seasons and probably by, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't pretend to have the scientific knowledge about this. I mean, people talk about, they use this acronym SAD, don't they, about, you know, seasonally affected disorder. They say it's the lack of vitamin D. So I don't know, I don't know what the science behind this is. But I do know that I find January and February the two most difficult months of the year you know there's a great uh, song of van morrison's where he sings it's easy to describe the leaves in the autumn and it's oh so easy in the spring but down through january and february <laughs> it's a very different thing because of course you're what you're describing is an absence mm-hmm. those bare ruined yeah, choirs yeah, yeah. right? where late the sweet birds sang yeah, yeah. so um 
I think both it's the darkness. I mean, I really need light. I mean, for me, the experience of depression is an experience of darkness, even amidst apparent light. So one of the most telling phrases in any poetry ever anywhere about that experience is is in Dante's Inferno where when he comes down I think it's in Canto 6 we meet in the sort of smoke going round and that's where the the sort of tragic lovers are he he talks about it that he says luce mute so the, the light is mute mm-hmm. the light is there but it's not telling you anything it's a physical phenomenon but it means nothing and it never it's it's lost its promise you know, so A, there's not that much light. And B, you know, if you're depressed, when the light comes, it doesn't say anything. It's mute. Um, so I find, I find, um, yeah, if I'm experiencing that sense of the muted light anyway, then, and then plus it's January and February, it's very, very difficult. Um, and you have to recollect. So for me, the other side is I have a poem, um, uh, called O Oriens, which is part of a pair of poems within they're the hinge pair within my seven advent things. So there's O Clavis, O Key of David, and O Oriens, O Day Spring. Both of those, the original collects, end about those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, lead them into the way of peace. So in the Latin of those poems, because I was responding to the Latin, the Latin prayers in my English poems. So um, in Latin. It's about lead out, educe, draw out those who sedentem in tenebris et in um, umbra mortis in the shadow of death. So sedentem, it's where we get the word sedentary. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, you know, if you've experienced that form of depression in which you actually cannot get out of bed. I mean, you simply, you simply cannot bring yourself to rise up and do anything in the face of the day. You know perfectly well you should, but you just cannot do it. And the curtains are closed, you know, and the room is dark. And the call there for Christ is to gently lead those people. Like It is no good if somebody rushes into your room and switches on all the lights. No. You know, you precisely have to sort of be let out. And um, so I began to to feel that, that the language of the seasons and the fact, you know, Shelley's great, and famous line in the Ode to the West Wind, if winter comes, can spring be far behind? And the sort of whole promise to Noah, you know, about the seasons are precisely seasons, that they promise change, that they lead on from one another. And one of the effects for for me of depression is that you can't imagine any other state. Yeah. You simply cannot imagine not being in this place, which is what leads to despair. So there's something about diligently following the progression of the seasons, no matter what, that in patterns into you the transition mm-hmm. that will come. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you wrote in gold, poetry or despair becomes yeah. poetry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. is despair itself is listed, lifted into poetry. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's a line, is it somewhere in Leo says, you know, this is not the worst while we can still say this is the worst. Yes. <laughs> you know, I'm not quoting it directly, but, you, you know, one of the things I really admire is people's capacity to express this. So just to take two examples, I mean, I love the man- moment in um, Tennyson's In Memoriam, which is another of those poems that deals with this stuff incredibly well where he says, um, so runs my dream, but what am I? An infant crying in the night, 
an infant crying for the light and with no language but a cry. Incredible thing to say, because infants, of course, means without speech. And yet he's using the full deployment of the best possible language, finally to, to express out loud what so many people feel, which is, this is so bad, there are no words for it. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> and to, actually, that's hugely encouraging. Now, the modern writer who does that, I think, incredibly well, is Gwyneth Lewis, the Welsh poet. Mm-hmm. Um, but she wrote a great prose book, which I... Th- personally think is the best book about depression that I've ever read and it's called Sunbathing in the Rain a (laughs) cheerful book about depression and she describes her own experience of depression in that book so well that anybody who's been there and felt that you kind of turn these pages and at once you think oh god how can I better read this I don't want to be taken back there but you keep reading and you suddenly realize at last somebody has said this I can give this book to someone. I, you know, somebody has articulated for me post hoc. I mean, she couldn't, you know, she, the book is written out of recovery. It can't be written at the time. But her capacity to put words to it. So de- despair itself is lifted into poetry. That seems to me to be infinitely preferable to the, the sheer muteness, which is the experience at the time. So it's a paradox that even quite apparently depressing poetry can actually be quite curative, quite healing, mm. because because at last the thing, as soon as the thing is really expressed, then you're back in the realm of human interaction, yeah. which is where you need to be. Exactly. It's that once you reach for language to reflect or try to describe your experience, then there's an opportunity for connection. Yeah, exactly. It's an opportunity to be present again. And poetic language is particularly helpful because it does not... Poetic language tends to be open rather than closed. It doesn't require you to have a perfect handle or a diagnosis. It allows you to say things and which which are simply ambiguous. Mm-hmm. So that, the, the, you know, the language is, you know... Um, doing more than one thing at the same time. And um, often that's the way one is experiencing things. Yeah. And to wrap up this part here so we can get to some poetry, sometimes poetry can jam your machine, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I meant the poetry jamming your machine in quite a good way in the sense that yeah. I felt the machinery of life and the machinery of a kind of mechanistic view of the world it was crushing the life out of us. I think a lot of mental yeah. health issues actually arise. And this is a really important thing we haven't touched on. Mm-hmm. We tend to individualize and medicalize and almost victimize, as it were, the experience of mental health issues and, and suffering and depression, as though this is the problem for the person experiencing it. But actually, I think often the people who experience this, as with Keats and others, are the most sensitive people we have. They're actually our antennae, our sensors, or to use another metaphor, they're the canary in the cage that mm-hmm. tells us whether we're breathing good or bad air. And I think a lot of the crises are to do with the fact that we have a fundamentally false account of what it is to be human. We have a mechanistic... Um, sort of process-driven commercial We are what we produce. All that yeah, stuff. Yeah. None of that is true. It's that specious crap, but we've been sold it because people want us to think that way in order that we should buy and sell products. Yeah. You know, it's a false view of what it is to be human and the assumption that, you know, you only really exist when you make when you make a purchase, you know. Uh, so we that is dry, literally driving people crazy. I mean, you know, in a sense, it's to be... 
to feel split, to feel alienated, to feel torn between a frenetic desire to be up there with everybody and a desperate sense of loneliness in response to that kind of false account of what it is to be human. That's a sane response. You yes. know? <laughs> so I actually think in some respects um, the crisis um, in mental health is a sign of a massive change that society needs to make. So whilst each individual who's actually personally suffering needs all needs help to get through that, society shouldn't simply medicalize that and ignore what those people are telling us about the way we live, you know. Um, I have a line I recently, going back to Georgia, my next collection of poetry, which is coming out in October, is going to be called After Prayer. And it's named after a sequence of sonnets I've written in response to George Herbert's poem, Prayer, each of which, you know, the prayer is only 14 lines, but I, it has, by my count, 27 images of what prayer is. And I write a sonnet for each one of these. So uh, one of those images is the, the Christian plummet sounding heaven and earth. And I, in, I mean, I make a new poem out of it. I, I imagine not just the lead that's being lowered into the sea to find out the depth, but I imagine a person who suffers from depression in a church community as being that lead line. And I've got a line, you sound for them the depths they sail above. Mm. You know, that actually the, that person who experiences that is bringing back news about things to all of us that we all need to hear. So Hopkins is the example of that. I mean, the fact that Hopkins could write, you know, no worse, there is none, pitch past, pitch of grief, you know, wild pangs will schooled on four pangs wildering, you know, the mind has mountains, cliffs of fall, sheer, frightful, no man fathomed, <laughs> hold them cheap, may who ne'er hung there. Those so-called terrible sonnets um, are an incredible testament to the fact that even you go, however deep you go into that bleak country and those those cliffs of fall, and however low you fall, Christ is there and you can still talk to him. Yeah, there is water under the. That's an incredibly important piece of news to bring back to Christendom. You know, and we need the Hopkinses to do that. So you know, he in a way is one of the Christian plummets. Malcolm was kind enough to share some poems from his latest collection, After Prayer, which is now available along with all of his books at malcolmgeit.wordpress.com. I was incredibly moved by the imagery in these sonnets of being in the depths of despair, but still surrounded by love. Take a moment to breathe and let these poems soak into your soul as Malcolm reads, the Christian Plummet and Christ's Side-Piercing Spear. Down into the icy depths you plunge, the cold, dark undertow of your depression. Even your memories of light made strange as you fall further from all comprehension. You feel as though they've thrown you overboard, your fellow Christians on the sunlit deck. A stone-cold Jonah on whom scorn is poured, a sacrifice to save them from the wreck. But someone has their hands on your long line, 
You sound for them the depths they sail above. One who takes Jonah as his only sign sinks lower still to hold you in his love. And though you cannot see or speak or breathe, the everlasting arms are underneath. For all the while I hurl my hurts at heaven, believing I besiege the battlement of God's invulnerable heart and haven. I strike at emptiness, at my own bafflement. I shake my fist in fury at a shadow, for he is not like us, nor are his ways like ours. He left that heaven's haven long ago and broke our siege. A voice behind me says, Why do you weep and rage at heaven above? I have come down to die here in the dirt. Your winds have wounded me, for I am love, and in my heart I hold your deepest hurt. Oh, turn around, return, and face me here. Your slightest prayer will pierce me like a spear. I just want to say thank you for thank sharing you. Yeah. with us today. Yeah. Well, thank you. And thank you for your questions, which I think have been very perceptive and very helpful and mm. brought out things in me I didn't quite know I knew how to say, so that's very good. <laughs> the last poem Malcolm read for me during our chat is called Because We Hunkered Down from his 2016 collection Parable and Paradox and is featured in the Sanctuary Course. For me, this poem is a beautiful, frank discussion of the bleakness that can come with the change of seasons or a struggle with depression. It ends in a startling, soft, tiny moment of hope. These bleak and freezing seasons may mean grace when they are memory. In time to come, when we speak truth, then they will have their place, telling the story of our journey home through dark December and stark January with all its disappointments, through the murk and dreariness of frozen February when even breathing seemed unwelcome work. Because through all of these we held together. Because we shunned the impulse to let go. Because we hunkered down through our dark weather and trusted to the soil beneath the snow. Slowly, slowly, turning a cold key, spring will unlock our hearts and set us free. Sanctuary Mental Health Ministries exists to equip the church to be a sanctuary for all people at all stages of their mental wellness journeys. 
May this podcast encourage you to create safe space for your own story and the stories of others, as well as create change in communities that stigmatize those suffering with mental health challenges. The Sanctuary Course is a small group resource designed to help initiate and guide conversations about mental health and faith. It is a starting point, creating a base of shared knowledge from which churches can explore the next steps. Perhaps most importantly, through the simple act of talking openly about mental health, the course helps churches begin to create safe spaces for people to share their mental health stories and receive support in community. Each theme in the course is explored from a psychological, social, and theological perspective, and each session is accompanied by a compelling film focused on an individual's story, a person of faith who has journeyed through mental health challenges. Interested in exploring the Sanctuary course for use in your community? Learn more at sanctuarymentalhealth.org slash sanctuary hyphen course and use the code sanctuarypodcast to receive 25% off in the checkout process. I'm your host, Sarah Kift, and I'm thankful for the people who helped make this episode happen. Post-production and editing by Jonathan Kift, music by the artist Crash by Car via archive.org, and all funding and support by the team at Sanctuary Mental Health Ministries. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives 4.0 license. Don't change it or sell it, but please share it all you like.